APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. Today we're talking about mental health care. It's always been and will continue to be important and relevant, but as the world seems to shift beneath us, we see it come into an even sharper focus. Today, we talk in particular about the effect the pandemic is having on our collective mental health, who is seeking care and what that care looks like. As more people are seeking support, practitioners are needing to adapt to new ways of working and helping their patients. I'm speaking to three guests who are working in mental health care in Victoria, the Australian state being hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment. So are all very well placed to discuss how healthcare is changing in this pandemic era. Let's meet clinical psychologist, Dr. Gemma Sharp. Thanks so much for having me here. It's wonderful to be here. So yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice and I'm also a senior research fellow at Monash University. And I have seen a huge increase in um, mental health treatment seeking in the last few months here in Victoria. Psychiatrist and medical educator, associate professor, Rob Seltzer. I'm a non-clinical psychiatrist. I uh, stepped uh, away from clinical work a while back to focus on teaching, which is what I love doing. And there has been a major change to the way that we are now teaching and also examining medical students and specialist trainees in mental health. And psychiatrist, Dr. Rebecca Hope. Welcome. Hello, I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I work in the Alfred Emergency Department and for the Statewide Gambling and Mental Health Service. And both of those services we've seen some significant changes uh, in who presents and, and how we approach people. To start off with, let's try and let's maybe cast our mind back to what you were doing before the pandemic, if, if that was different to what you're doing now. Rebecca, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. Well, prior to COVID, I was working in the emergency department at the Alfred and for the statewide gambling mental health service. Uh, due to the demand that we were expecting in the emergency department, my sessions in the statewide gambling service were diverted to work uh, fully in the emergency department. Um, first, it's interestingly, in the first lockdown, we noticed that there were actually a significant reduction in presentations, both medical and mental health, to the emergency department. Uh, and then the second lockdown, we've certainly noticed that there's an um, increase in the number of mental health people presenting with mental health issues. Um, and that's certainly um, increased, particularly with regards to drug and alcohol um, intoxication and people with um, evolving difficulties in the context of COVID isolation. Right. So the preparations that you put in place expecting that surge for the first round, did you yep. kind of fall back on that as it increased in the second wave? Uh, certainly. I mean, the response by the hospital was pretty incredible. There's immediate expansion behind the emergency department of uh, the COVID testing clinic, but also as well as a significant number of medical wards uh, that they were expecting. Uh, levels such as you know Italy and France when uh, they experienced their first wave and fortunately we didn't have that given that the lockdown really slowed down the number of presentations and so when we had the second wave it was certainly a lot more ready facilities available to cope with the demand that did come in. Rob could you talk to us about your pre-pandemic role? Yeah yeah so my role was as I said to do um teaching with uh, medical students and, and registrars in mental health uh, at the same hospital as Rebecca. And um, 
you know, it's a job I love. And I, I love the back and forth between, you know, young people and getting ideas and being questioned about stuff that I've been doing for years and years and years. And it's, it's a really enjoyable environment. We suddenly had to pivot to get out of a classroom and do everything via Zoom. And that, you know, it's, it kind of sounds like, oh yeah, it's easy. You just do the same thing you do, but you do it via the web. It's not, it's actually quite, there's, there's a very, very different vibe. Some learners like it because you don't have to travel to class and uh, you're part of a classroom. But then there's the, the back and forth that you don't get. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have noticed, but in Zoom meetings, there's this, I call it the, the Zoom awkward 10. There's 10 seconds after you answer a question where everybody thinks the other person's going to answer and they don't want to interrupt the other person and kind of everyone's just waiting. So I sort of have to count down in my head 10 seconds and you waste a lot of time that way. A lot of the medical students now um, aren't getting to see as many patients because of you know the, the, the risk of, tra of COVID transmission. And that's a big issue because a big thing with, with learning medicine you know, psychiatry is part of medicine, is to actually see a patient, think about the complexities, discuss it with people. And um, because students aren't getting as much of that, it's actually really, it's, it's hard for them. Yep. It, it's really interesting, isn't it? How it's not just about digitizing what was analog. It's about thinking about it, what the purpose of it is, rather than what the channel of delivery was. And so we're trying to find novel ways of if we can't recreate the clinical experience, then at least try and give them something else. One of the things I've gotten students to do is, is we do uh, clinical scenarios. So I'll posit a scenario and say, you know, what would you do? And, and presuming that, you know, only 2% of medical students are going to become psychiatrists. I always preface it by saying, look, I'm not saying you're going to become a psychiatrist, but you're going to be in the ED or you're going to be a general practitioner or you're going to be a specialist and you are going to be faced with these clinical dilemmas. It's not just psychiatrists. And I try and really reinforce that. Um, and then we discuss a lot of the issues around that. And I try and get everybody to chip in. The other thing that we've, that um, it was kind of out of uh, just an idea, really, we've gotten the registrars now to do uh, more of the teaching. So the senior registrars are teaching some of the junior registrars and that has gone down a treat. Like it's worked really, really well. Once we uh, try and go back to, tr to, to, to business as usual, it won't be as usual, I think we will take a whole lot of these ideas, a whole lot of these technologies, a whole lot of these new processes with us. And um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking forward to doing. Gemma, could you talk to us about what you do day to day, particularly pre-pandemic? Sure. Um, so pre-pandemic, I was running my private practice and telehealth sessions were probably pretty rare for me, maybe like one a month. And then suddenly I transitioned entirely to online sessions at the end of March. And um, I suppose I was pretty lucky that I'd done at least some telehealth before, but there were some psychologists out there who hadn't done any telehealth sessions ever. So we were having a lot of seminars about what platform is best to use, how to um, change our practices. Um, so we had a lot of sort of professional development very quickly as well. Um, and I think because I'm in the area of eating disorders, I um, was weighing my clients every session and suddenly I couldn't do that anymore. And so it was about, um, corresponding with a family member, their partners, their GPs, whoever I could get to help me with this weighing process. So I had to do quite a bit of problem solving. 
And I also saw, um, sadly, just with the lockdowns, that that kind of um, environment breeds eating disorder symptomatology. And so I was getting a lot more referrals, people I hadn't seen for years coming back. And then um, the government uh, kindly also granted 10 extra um, telehealth sessions under mental health care plans, which meant that people had even more sessions. So just um, slotting everyone in was getting really, really challenging. But I will say that some, some of my clients who I've never actually met in person, which is really strange for me, I've only ever seen them via telehealth, have said, I love this platform. I never want to meet you in person, Gemma. No offence. I think there's going to be some people who will continue on with telehealth and absolutely love it. And there are others who are like, no, I really prefer that face-to-face. -face. So I can see my practice being more like 50-50 telehealth and in-person rather than very much in-person before the pandemic started. It's really interesting you say that, Gemma, about the noticeable increase in people um, both with new eating disorders and relapsing, because that's certainly something that we've noticed in the emergency department, is an increase in, in people really struggling who have severe eating disorders with significant biological um, dysfunction, really low potassium, uh, and who really the, the control, loss of control around uh, lockdown and the dynamics around the anxiety and unknowing uncertainty that everybody's sharing at the moment. Absolutely, Rebecca, and I'm fortunate to work with the Butterfly Foundation and they've seen their helpline um, increase drastically during this time and, and it's all flooding through to um, psychologists, psychiatrists, other mental health professionals. And of course, um, as you were saying there as well, Rebecca, like getting people medically managed as well. Like it's not just a, it's not just in-person sessions. It's about working in a multidisciplinary team with these more complex presentations and how we're navigating that in this online world. Gemma, um, do you find that you're doing more kind of Zoom or uh, computer type consultations or more telephone consultations? And has that changed over the last couple of months? I think I've always given my clients the choice, Rob, and they've predominantly chosen a teleconference versus a phone. I find that much easier just to be able to read people's facial expression. Um, I find phone a bit tricky, but of course, if that's the person's preference, then that's absolutely fine. Yeah, the reason I ask is because I've got some mates who are psychiatrists and they found that some people actually prefer using the phone. It's, it's easier to talk into the phone than to face somebody on a screen. Yeah, I think particularly my uh, clients who have gambling dependence, it's actually something that some people really don't like the platform, but other people actually find it much easier, particularly with addictions where it's the, the actual getting to the outpatient service is really hard, um, can, uh, just actually taking that step. Whereas if you're a phone up in your in your home and you know, you've got a bit of time, a lot of people, particularly during lockdown, are quite isolated and are actually much more willing to connect and engage with somebody. So what we've noticed is actually particularly Gamblers Help online counsellors are actually um, finding people much more engaging and willing to have those conversations over the phone. Can you think of anything else that's working really well um, in this kind of pivot stage? Rebecca? One of the things that I've noticed that is working amazingly well um, and very unexpectedly and pleasantly well during COVID is actually how our team operates in the emergency department. We, you know, there's, there's so much that's come in with regards to, you know, people who are acutely agitated and, you know, substance intoxicated and who have some really 
really troubled presentations, but I think COVID in a way has actually really brought our little team together, partly because we're stuck in the same little room without any windows for a while, um, but also about, you know, people are, the people I work with are, you know, they're incredibly resilient, they have great sense of humour, and, and that's actually something that I've actually really enjoyed, to the point where after the first lockdown, and we were starting to reintegrate with the rest of the service, um, that people were sort of, you know, going, oh, I'm going to miss, miss us and just being together. So that's actually been a really nice thing for me. I've also just, I mean, I was impressed by how quickly an organisation as large as a very large hospital can pivot. I mean, organisationally, you know, doing all those things from the top down, it, it was, everything changed on a dime. It was really impressive. I mean, one day I'd turn up to work, I, you know, I hadn't been there for a week and I get to the car park and there's this huge building, this new outpatient kind of temporary building in the car park. It's like they built it in a week whilst I wasn't there. You know, it's, it's that kind of deal. Gemma, do you have any other things that you've seen work well? That's like, I totally agree with Rebecca and Rob there, just that sense of community. Like I think as, um, as psychologists, we all came together going, what platform do we use? How do we take money online? Like it was just all these, um, the same questions. And I also think what's been really cool is just that um, being in it with our clients and patients too. Like it's rare that we're all facing the same issue at once. Gemma, you spoke about seeing lots of presentations of people with eating disorders. Are there any other cohorts that you've seen like noticeably increased numbers in? I've seen it across the board, like people who are struggling with anxiety, depression, substance abuse, personality disorders. It's been everywhere. Um, and so people, oh, I should say OCD as well. I mean, that's probably not a surprise in a pandemic. Um, although some of them are sort of saying, oh, it's my time to shine, all my hand sanitizing. I told you it would pay off. So um, some more OCD. I, I really think it's been across the board. If anyone's had any kind of underlying mental health issues, it's probably been exacerbated in this time. Oh, we've particularly noticed the second time round of lockdown, a significant increase in presentations of people with um, substance intoxication and dependence. Uh, and I think that probably really speaks to addiction being, again, sort of the underlying um, difficulty is, is loss of connection with other people. And so what what COVID's really doing is enhancing that sense of um, disconnection, but also the availability of alcohol is, um, is all there at the moment. And so isolation uh, and the combination between uh, like the difficulties that some people have with um, connecting on an audiovisual um, basis as well. I think again, sort of a lot of the uh, established treatments for people with um, addiction were group therapies and people are really feeling that loss of things like AA and NA um, and if, have, which haven't lended themselves quite so well to an AV kind of setting. Um, and there's uh, the other tricky thing at the moment is there's a lot of really dirty meth and GHB around at the moment. So we're getting a lot of quite toxic presentations um, of those. Um, so, so yeah, it's hard for, really hard for people at the moment. I mean, there is a lot of grief and a lot of anger about what's happened to people's businesses you know, um, their lives, their loved ones, you know, and it's this, it's this bloody virus that's doing it. And, but often that anger gets displaced or goes somewhere where it probably really shouldn't, but it just happens to go there. 
And I think that we're the fact that we're all experiencing this at the same time, almost like it amplifies um, the anger as well and amplifies the grief and the loss. Because often we see people presenting individually, they struggle with their individual um, you know, relationship losses and the job loss, but this is on a macro level. And if you take it in the background of, you know, the Australian bushfires, significant losses was recently for that. And then there's more meta kind of views in the world. You know, there's a, a lot of anger, um, not just at people. And I think people are really finding, struggling to find ways that they can action that. So I think it comes through in some other more difficult uh, ways. And we've certainly seen an increase in the rates of domestic violence during COVID. Um, you know, whether that on a more personal level, that anger comes out, but it's also, you know, the sense of, again, the loss of connection. I think sometimes we're able to dissipate some of that anger and frustration together, but we, we are really struggling. And one of those struggles is loneliness. Gemma, could you talk about um, patients or clients that you've seen who've been experiencing loneliness and any comment on that? So loneliness has been a theme throughout this entire pandemic, whether people have been living with flatmates, a partner by themselves, they've all experienced it in some form. And I've just seen people who normally are very extroverted just um, become very introverted, saying that they don't even want to go on social media or Zoom or anything like that because they're just so tired of that digital connection. They just want that human connection back. And it's been really hard as a clinical psychologist because normally these are kind of the coping strategies we would recommend, you know, reaching out to a friend, reaching out to a family member. And we haven't had that at our disposal. And I think um, we as clinical psychologists and mental health professionals have felt the same frustration and I think that, I suppose that has been a bit comforting for, uh, for my clients and patients that I myself say, yeah, I'm struggling with that too. And um, it doesn't make it any easier, but at least they know they're, they're not by themselves in that sense of being lonely, even if, they're, if they've got three flatmates, um, you know, they still find themselves lonely at times because I suppose they just want that diversity of connection as well. So yeah, and, and um, I think another thing I've seen is people who aren't uh, necessarily from Victoria, so they have their families in other states, they, you know, they've, they've got me to write letters to try and get them home, and of course I haven't been successful, um, and so it's about going, okay, what, what resources do we have here in Victoria for you, and so I really feel for everyone who, who has family in other states and overseas, it's been a really hard time. Do you know one of the things that you, that you brought up, Gemma? and Rebecca about isolation and loneliness is that there's a lot of things that um, audio visual communication cannot replace. And a big thing that I've noticed is touch. You know, touch is so important amongst friends and families to hug or a handshake, you know, and we can't do that now. In fact, you know, in fact, even little kids are told not to share. You know? So all these social norms that we're so used to as a species have, have stopped. And it's very hard for us to get our heads around that, you know. Um, so whilst we do can communicate, uh, you know, with our words and with our, you know, um, non-verbally, I think there are some things which are really important to us as a species like touch, which we can't do, <laughs> you know, for a while anyway. 
what 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 is it like for patients when they're um, presenting, particularly people who haven't accessed mental health care previously? Um, Rebecca, could you talk about when you see kind of first timers and what that's like for them in pandemic? Well, what we know is that there's what uh, there's been a significant increase in first contact, so phone triages, and certainly know that uh, contacts like Beyond Blue have seen a massive increase in people calling for help. A lot of the people in the emergency department are people who we don't have a lot of information about, and so you need to try and get a relationship with them quickly, uh, so that they can tell you what their story is, and you can come to uh, a treatment plan with them. The use of PPE or essentially um, working in a plastic bag, um, it does make things a lot harder, apart from the, the sweetiness, but mostly it's it's about, you know, almost like sort of stepping in from the moon and somebody's already in a foreign environment with lots of beeping and tweeting and drama going on. And it's much harder, I think, to try and get a human connection with somebody. So some of the things that I try and do first is initially just actually introduce myself, um, you know, first name and... Uh, just say, hey, look, I'm really sorry about the plastic bag I have to wear today. You know, how, how are you finding things with, with you know, COVID and, and how does it affect you? Because a lot of the people who are presenting, particularly those who are struggling um, with suicidal thoughts or uh, are really, have, that loss of connection with, with other people has been really hard for them. So trying to have some sort of connection when you're with the patient, I think, is, is very important and a little bit harder at the moment. Gemma, I'm wondering if you could talk about um, when you see clients or patients um, for the first time, particularly, you know, we might have people listening who are considering um, starting a therapeutic relationship, what kind of things you see or, or, or work well for new patients? I think um, I think one of the I suppose sort of strange lines I say to people when they first come and it's telehealth as their first session is I'm way better in person so if you like me now you'll love me in person. Um, so <laughs> I suppose I kind of um, label that it's like quite a weird thing to start a therapeutic relationship via telehealth um, and that tends to sort of put people at ease a bit more and I think probably with telehealth I tend to um, go a bit slower with therapy because it takes a little bit more to build rapport with people. So I think like I'm never pushing anyone too quickly. Um, it's not like a Zoom meeting where everyone sort of jumps in all the time. It's just, um, it's just about getting to know people. So I think if someone is considering it, absolutely. I think telehealth has been a great initiative and, um, and obviously you can do it from the comfort of your own home. So you're not in a strange environment, which I know some people find really daunting at their first appointment. So you kind of, you can be around, like some people hold their pets for their first session. I've met so many cats and dogs and, and young children. And just, um, I've had people have sessions in cars because they haven't quite felt comfortable um, because they're maybe complaining about a dodgy flatmate or something like that. Um, so I think it just, I suppose it allows um, people to, to attend therapy where they're comfortable doing so and that's what makes it really great. Could you talk about what it's been like for you um, being on the front line of mental health care but also acknowledging that there are real changes for your own mental health probably because of this 
situation that we all find ourselves in. I suppose what I've seen is the blending of my work life and home life quite radically. I think, you know, I used to travel to my clinic and, you know, usher people in and out of the therapy room. And now I'm just like clicking buttons on the teleconference line. So I think that's been something I found a bit trickier to navigate. Not that I you know, was terribly good at work-life balance before, my colleagues will attest to, um, but I think it's been even more challenging. And I think, um, I think probably a lot of us as health professionals um, have been teetering on a bit of burnout. And I think that's been something I've been very mindful of, making sure that I still take that time out for myself, even if it's just, you know, between clients or patients, just even standing up, doing a star jump or something like that just to um, take a bit of a mindful pause between um, that's, I suppose that's been the biggest challenge for me, just making sure that I still have my professional life and my personal life still delineated in some way. I reckon that's one of the key issues you brought up, um, Gemma, about boundaries. And so, you know, when you went to work, that was, you know, you left the house and you did your work at work and you came home and you had your personal life at home. And now your work's in, in the same space, both physically and temporally, as your personal life. And that can get really murky. And I think, you know, one of the most important things people can do is to have a clear delineation, like I have a boundary, both temporally, as you said you do, you take a second away or a minute away and you sort of center yourself and also a physical space too. I think that's really important as well. And I think that 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 sort of keys into the whole idea of having a structure in a day that, you know, otherwise the days just blend into one another. You know, it's like when you're on holidays, you wake up one morning and say, what day is it today? That can happen, you know, during when you're locked in your house for, you know, weeks at a time. And to have a structure where you know what you're doing sort of in the morning, in the afternoon, and it, and it gives you some miles, some sort of signposts to your day. I think that's super important. That's what I do too. Yeah. And Rebecca, as a leader um, at the at the hospital and also someone who um, is charged with looking after patients, can you talk about how, um, what kind of strategies you might use to look after yourself or build into your day so that you can protect best protect the safety of your patients and their families? Well, look, in, in some ways, I, I do consider myself a bit lucky that I still am allowed to go to work five days a week. Um, and as I say, I work with a really cool team and, and we do try to stop um, at least kind of have an hour or two a week where we get together and kind of debrief about things for the week or we talk about something completely different um, that's non-work related. And I think particularly as time's gone on, um, particularly trying to get literally outside the hospital into the sunlight in the middle of the day is super important uh, because as with the uh, infection requirements and that sort of thing, like we can't go out um, dressed in our scrubs or anything like that. So actually make an effort to put some different pants on, go outside, get some vitamin D and then come back in and put your other pants back on. That, that stuff's super important. I was going to ask each of you whether you had a memorable or telling kind of experience in the past um, six months that you, you'd be able to share with us. Anyone interesting that you've seen, any enlightening conversations or displays of human genius and generosity? Tash, I, I reckon it's, it's a really good question, but I have had this sense of people galvanising, of coming together. Um, and, and trying to do the best they can under really difficult circumstances. And of course, um, it's not always easy and um, it doesn't always come without its challenges. But really in healthcare, the, the, the people that I work with, I mean, I, 
I do sound like a Pollyanna, I know, but it's just, it's remarkable that, you know, being at my age, having been a doctor for over 30 years, I can still be surprised by things and pleasantly surprised. Not that I thought that people wouldn't, you know, galvanize and pull together, but just the way that they did it. It was just, you know, it was just, it's really heartening to see that. Gemma? Yes, I agree with Rob. I, I was, um, I mean, you asked such a good question there, Tash, and I, I suppose I had two answers. I suppose the the most bizarre thing that I've had happen in the past six months of telehealth is um, a naked flatmate go past my client in the background. Um, <laughs> and I was like, should I comment on that? Probably should. Um, just, just so they don't feel like they have to come say hi to me because sometimes I do get introduced to flatmates during sessions, um, which is always fun to see what kind of environments people find themselves in. Um, I suppose the, the lovely thing I found during this time has been, I think, like clients have been asking me more how I am, um, like as a person, which I've really valued um, because I think before that, and I'm not saying that they weren't caring because they're lovely people, but they tended not to ask that as much. And so now, like I know when they ask, I really mean it. And they hope that I'm like going well in my life because they know that I'm facing all the same restrictions that they are too so i've yeah that it sort of warms the cockles of my heart when when i get asked that it just, just makes me feel like a human and not just the health professional for me the, again talking to the collegiality and of the team and having um brought people together um i mean i guess the things that were important to us prior to covid some of those things don't really matter anymore and i think we're really seeing more of the human side of each other and that just to connect with each other and sometimes you know we don't have to get along with absolutely everybody that we work with but i think there's much more of an appreciation that we all have the same needs what what are you seeing that we're doing now is happening in your various workplaces that you'd love to take with you into this new normal that we're slowly kind of wading into um what what's working well and what do you hope for the future of mental health care in australia you know one of the important things is the government emphasis on mental health and just today i mean i i looked at very briefly the head to health um uh, website which uh, i look i really didn't know much about and there's been a lots of discussion about mental health uh you know in the media um um, amongst politicians, I mean, amongst uh, health practitioners as well. And so it has become really put at the forefront I mean, and it needs to be. And I think that's one of the things that we're really going to have to focus on. Sure, there's the economy. Absolutely. Sure, there's COVID. Absolutely. But once, you know, COVID is hopefully sorted and the economy starts to, you know, rev up a bit, we've really got to maintain the attention that we've placed on, on mental health. And I hope we carry that forward with us. And that it continues to be normal to ask your psychologist how they are and everybody around you. Yeah, I echo Rob as well, but probably more so even actually it's been really nice how much the media is focusing on mental health and the importance of looking after yourself, um, not only for people who are currently having difficulties, but actually keeping yourself healthy. So exercise, um, you know, trying to connect with, uh, however you can with other people, whether that's over digital media. Um, so I think that's really good. Gemma, what, what would you like to see for the future? I think we've really seen the digitization of mental health 
quickly. And this is something I'm super passionate about in both my clinical and research careers. Um, Rob mentioned the Head to Health website and it's a great website and it's got a chatbot on there called Sam, who you can chat to. And I'm actually building a body image chatbot with the Butterfly Foundation. And so that's like, I want to retire and just let the chatbot do my job. I'll be there 24 seven. Um, so yeah, I think awesome new digital mental health tools to improve accessibility and that 24 seven coverage is going to be awesome. Thank you. Rob, Gemma and Rebecca for sharing your expert thoughts and insights during these strange and difficult times. Thank you so much, Tash. That was great. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Tash. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tash. The content of today's episode may have raised some issues for some listeners. If you're concerned for the mental health of yourself, a friend or family member, there is help available. If you would like support or information about depression or anxiety, you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 4636. They also have an email and web chat at beyondblue.org.au. Lifeline is there to talk to anyone about emotional distress, crisis support, and suicide prevention. Call 131114. Send a text message or web chat at lifeline.org.au. The Butterfly Foundation provides support, care, referrals, and resources about eating disorders. You can call them on 1800 4673 email or web chat at butterfly.org.au. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Why not listen to another one? You can subscribe by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. And if you have any questions or feedback, please email us at communications at Take care.